Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we're chatting to serial entrepreneur Norman Prowley about his mission to cool down the planet. Norman's had a really interesting career, having started and sold multiple successful businesses, all before the age of 40, including Inspired Gaming and The Cloud. But his current venture is much more personal to him. He set out to do something that would make a positive impact on the world rather than just make money. We chatted to him about how the Cool Planet Group came about, how Crowley Carbon harnesses data to drive efficiency, and what he sees for the future in terms of sustainability. It's a really interesting chat, so let's head over to the studio and hear from the man himself. Hi Norman, so you are very welcome along to Inside Intercom today. We're delighted to chat with you about your work at Crowley Carbon and your wider vision for making global companies more sustainable. But before we kick off and get into all that, I'd love if you could share a little bit of your background with our audience because it's been quite the journey from training as a welder at 15 to becoming a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, I suppose um, every entrepreneurial journey is an interesting story. I grew up in West Cork in in the south of Ireland in the 70s and you know money wasn't that freely available you know we were fairly poor and so I started to develop a hankering for you know making money at an early age and then when I was about 12 my dad taught me how to weld and then once you had a skill then you could make money from that skill and so farmers would come to us and want us to fix things and build sheds. And by the time I was 16, I had like 12 people working for me. And by the time I was 20, I had sold that business to a local builder. And I always wanted to work in technology. I always loved software and developing software. So I set up a technology company and that grew over six or seven years to be 170 people in three or four cities around the world. And then in 1999, sold that company to a telecoms business and retired at the ripe old age of 28. Realized after three or four weeks that retirement was boring and then set up a gaming software company called Inspired Gaming Group. And that went on to become a monster. I floated it on the London Stock Exchange in 2006, exited it in 2008 for about a half a billion bucks. And that kind of brings us up to the latest bunch of companies. I love that you describe them as a bunch of companies. <laughs> Very casual. 20, 27 uh, at last count. Yeah. <laughs> but you were still at Inspired Gaming when you came up with the idea for Crowley Carbon, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Along the way too, we also set up a business called The Cloud. It's funny how you, how you forget the $80 million one. Um, so... In 2004, we got an idea to set up the largest Wi-Fi operator in Europe. Um, and Wi-Fi was new at the time. And that was the cloud. And it was that was set up before there was the thing called the cloud. And we sold that to Rupert Murdoch in 2011 for about 80 million bucks. So, and we always have... Ideas aren't the problem, you know, so we always have ideas. And so we we got the idea from about 2005, a friend of mine became obsessed with climate change. And so we would, he would invite us to events to do with climate change. And we started to realize that climate was just a huge existential threat to the world. 
And so we got involved then. And then I suppose as we were, you know, grinding to a halt with regard to the last business, with regard to Inspired, and we knew that we were going to sell it, we started thinking up the new business at that point. And, you know, even now we set up new companies. We set up a, a new startup in in COVID, actually, in lockdown. And we've taken that. That business was born in lockdown and now has a 30 million valuation. And, and it only started in March. Um, so, yeah, setting up new companies is... It's not a problem for us. The only problem is that we probably have too many companies sometimes. So that that's the problem. <laughs> well, it's it sounds there's a lot of plates spinning when you have that. But I mean, I, I read an interview with you where you said that with this company that we're oh. talking today, Crowley Carbon, that there was kind of a personal motivation where you wanted your next business venture to be something that made more than money, that did some good. Was that personal motivation really, really key part of it for you yeah yeah when you look back you know we at that point we had done like five exits and so you look back and you say do you want to spend the next 20 years just setting up another business buying something for a buck selling it for two bucks and so impact became a big thing but impact was a thing before that like we we had been working in orphanage charities in the late 90s in Inspired, we incubated uh, an eye care charity in Africa called Right to Sight. You know, so each one has had some form of meaning, and that's really important to us and and a big motivator. But then, I guess when we set up Crowley Carbon, climate change was the big mission, and that mission has broadened out now, but is still very much there. And um, so, it's an important thing, and it's not. You know, it's not if people are listening going, oh, there's another do-gooder. Like actually doing stuff that has meaning and purpose can be quite a selfish act, you know, because it, it gives you just huge joy all the time, you know. And so, and our teams, you know, it, it's a huge motivator for them. And and so we don't really have any interest in setting up businesses anymore unless they can have a positive impact on something. Brilliant. And Crowley Carbon has been described as a SaaS company, but its mission is to cool down the planet and create more sustainable business opportunities for corporations. Can you tell us a little bit how this works then on an operational level and kind of what sort of industries you've had success working with? Yeah. So Crowley Carbon is part of a wider group called Cool Planet Group. And Crowley Carbon is the energy division of that. And the, the mission behind a wider group is there are three things that cause climate change. The burning of fossil fuels for energy, the use of fossil fuels for transport, and then animals, basically. And if you, if you solve the, those three problems, energy, transport, and the use of animals for food, then you've solved climate change, ostensibly. And so that's what we work on. So Crowley Carbon then is the energy leg of that. And what's shocking in terms of energy is that every year we take about $4 trillion worth of fossil fuels out of the ground, so oil, gas, coal, and we waste three quarters of that, basically. Um, So we waste three of the $4 trillion. 
so you can do solar and, and we have a business that does solar and wind and all of that. But isn't the most obvious thing that you would stop wasting three of the four trillion dollars that you would spend on, on energy first? And so Crowley Carbon is an energy efficiency company. It operates in 23 countries around the world. And we don't tackle houses or domestic houses. We actually we look at who are the biggest energy consumers in the world. And the biggest energy consumers are large food companies, steel companies, concrete companies. And we work with them to dramatically reduce their energy consumption. And we have a bunch of technologies. Like you said, SaaS, we have a SaaS software platform called Clarity. And then we have a bunch of technologies as well. And for our biggest client, we're saving them about $100 million annually in energy. And we work with three of the top four food companies in the world, seven of the top eight pharmaceutical companies in the world. And that business has grown from startup to currently in 23 countries around the world. Fantastic. And I'd, I'd love to, to kind of dive in a little deeper on that clarity system that you mentioned, because yeah. I think it's going to be a real area of interest for our audience, because mm-hmm. essentially what you're doing there is you're, you're harnessing the power of data to drive mm-hmm. that effect. So yeah. are you happy to, to, to yeah. tell us about how that works and get a bit more into the weeds on it? Yeah, definitely. Well, if you, like information is power, we all know that, right? And But the things that consume most energy in the world are complex, right? So if you're a steel plant, you know, there are things happening in the steel plant all the time. Things are changing all the time. The weather's getting hotter outside. You know, you have a bigger amount of scrap in your furnace. If you're creating food, you know, if you're if you're in a meat factory, then you've got one type of cow one day and a different type of cow another day. And the weather's hot, the weather's cold. And so the variables are massive. And so what our software does um, at its most basic is we deploy sensors everywhere around the factory or everywhere around the building. And then we give the operators or the engineers real-time information about where waste is happening. So you are wasting way more than you should in your boiler right now. And this is how much you're wasting. This is why you're wasting it. And this is what you can do to fix it. And when we built that platform, and it's taken seven or eight years to build, the first thing that happened was people saved energy. But now what's happened as well is, if your equipment is not performing properly and you're wasting energy, you're also your throughput of, of widgets is not as high as it should be either. And so now it's become not just an energy optimization, but a quality optimization, a throughput optimization. And it's one of the leading players in this thing that people talk about called Internet of Things, where you have lots of tiny sensors reporting back and then you have this huge brain in the middle that's figuring out that information and why that information is important and it's become an ally of the engineer and the production manager so it partners with them to give them more insights to empower them to make changes and that's been a complete game changer over the last couple of years. And to speak to those customers, actually, I mean, your website boasts some serious logos. You've got General Electric, Johnson mm-hmm. & Johnson, mm-hmm. Intel, and that's just to name. But if you, what mm-hmm. sort of results are you having for enterprise companies at that scale? Like savings wise, we average about a 30% reduction in energy, which is pretty phenomenal. 
And then in terms of throughput, we just finished a factory in the Czech Republic where we increased manufacturing throughput by about 22%. So, you know, these are some pretty powerful numbers. But really, it's only in the last year that we figured out how to sell it because up until then, what we would do is we would go to the CEO and say, hey, we can save you money and we can lower your carbon footprint. And they would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they would send us to the guy who who runs the factory. And what we learned, and sadly it took us a long time to learn this, is that actually the guys who run factories are completely overwhelmed. And they've got everything from ISO 50001 standardization. They've got new IT coming in. They're downsizing, upsizing, right-sizing, left-right-sizing. And they're just overwhelmed. And then they don't have as many engineers as they had last year because of cost cuts. And so what we learned was that in order to get the system to work for them, you had to become their ally. You had to understand what were the real things that they needed. Because... The plant manager doesn't need cost reduction because that's that's not the thing that gets him or her to win. They need to get home on a Friday evening. They need to know that they're not going to get called out on a Saturday night because they've had a big breakdown. And so we really learned that the messaging and the product had to do a different thing for every person in the organization. And it was only when we cracked that that we really saw an explosion in take-up for the technology. That makes a lot of sense. Jack, I, I just wanted to pick your brain on, on one aspect of, of kind of working with these bigger companies. I mean, you've said before, Norman, that, you know, a failure in sustainability hasn't been a failure of government, that it's actually been a failure of invention or innovation. Very much so. Yeah. Do do you believe that with the right technology, that private enterprise can actually be a change for the better? And almost crucially, will they? Well, our view is that 90% of the work of solving climate change will be done by technology economics. And also, and this is the controversial view we have, we believe that climate change will be largely solved by 2030. Wow without the help of government. There's probably 10% where government can help. They can speed up the process. They're not, by the way, but they could, right? And also then, you know, they could, there are just aspects that they, them and only them can solve, but that's not 90% of the problem. And the reason for that is, and people listening to this will disagree, right? And if people are patient, they can listen to my thesis, right? The three main problems, 85, 90% of all global warming is caused not by plastic bags, which is what some people believe, but actually by energy transport food, right? Meat's a big problem, and then transport's a big problem, energy's a big problem. So if you take them one by one, energy, solar, wind, battery will solve almost all our energy requirements over the next 10 years. And we don't need a whole lot of government subsidies or anything because the price of this debt is absolutely cratering. And it just makes no sense to do anything but use renewable energy, not in five years' time, but right now. Right? So that one tick the box, right? Then transport is going to go largely electric with a little bit of hydrogen. And again there, even now, without any government subsidies, it, if you take the full uh, ownership, the full life cycle of a car, 
it's cheaper right now without any government subsidies to have an electric car. And then some people, because they need to drive longer journeys, it doesn't suit them right now. But with a thousand kilometer battery, which we're pretty much there on now, that solves that. And then the last one is meat. And the big upheaval in meat is going to be what's called cell ag, cellular agriculture. And now is the first year that we're really going to see cell ag products in the supermarkets. And by 2025, probably 50, 60% of all meat products will be cell ag. And cell ag is you take a cell from meat and you put it into a bioreactor and then you basically photocopy it. You grow a burger. And I'm vastly oversimplifying it. But the economics around cell ag is that it's 90% less carbon intensive. In fact, in most cases, 99% less carbon intensive, you know, 70% less water, but most shockingly, 20 times cheaper to create a burger, right? And there is a wall of money being pumped into cell ag. Like it's gone from 100 million of investment in 2018 to nearly 7 billion in investment this year in cellular agriculture. And so when you decarbonize food, transport, and energy, you solve climate change. And people say to us then, hey, I don't want to have a, a burger that's grown in a lab. And that's the same way that people talk about any change that's happening in the world. They fear it, and therefore they don't accept it. But actually... If you were perfectly happy with a burger and then I photocopied that burger at a cellular level and it was identical, then why do you have a problem with it? And secondly, you won't even know. It's a bit like genetically modified seeds. You won't know where that burger came from. And so you you won't get a say now as to whether it's a cell ag burger or not. And so that view... Our view on the decarbonization of the world is supported by economics, not supported by emotions and feelings, right? It's like this is happening. You you don't get a say, right? Because if something is cheaper, you're just going to use it. So that's, that's our riff. <laughs> and if you look back 40 years ago when we discovered global warming, when I say we, I wasn't there, but when when global warming was discovered, what happened was we then realized that we needed to create things differently, but we just didn't have the technology. And so the only way we could stop global warming back then was to tell people, you must live without, you must live minimally, you can't live maximally. And guess what? Humans in our entire history, we want to live maximally. We want better life for our children, bigger cars, bigger houses, all that stuff. And you cannot if you try and get people to change by saying you must live minimally, people won't. It's against our human nature, right? A certain percentage will, but it's a tiny percentage. Our human nature is that we live maximally. And so if we, instead of doing what we've been doing for 40 years, if we turn around and say, you can have a beautiful car, anybody can have it, even the poorest of the poor, it, it can drive itself. You know, you can have meat even in the poorest parts of the world. Then you will solve climate change because you are giving people what they want, not what you think they should want. That makes a lot of sense. And then actually just to, to kind of stay on the individual point that you were making there, like one thing that I've certainly observed over the last 12 months as, you know, people globally have been dealing with COVID is yeah. that, 
you know, people who, individuals now, who two years ago would have avoided using single-use plastics like a bottle Mm. of water. Mm. And they're now almost daily using perhaps surgical gloves or masks Mm. and all things regularly. Do you think with everything that's happened in the last 12 months, there is a danger as a, you know, as a society that we've kind of taken our eye off the ball in terms of sustainability because of that more immediate danger? Um, no, I, if you asked me in March last year, I would have said yes, because, but actually the data shows us that there's never been as much money available for investing in green technologies and people are more eager than ever to do it. And so like certain aspects of the media have focused on things like the amount of plastic waste in, in PPE around COVID, but like the amount of increased plastic usage during COVID is nominal as regards the world, you know, and climate change. It's it's an interesting story when you see a whole lump of plastic outside a hospital, it's upsetting, but actually in the grand scheme of global warming, it's a non-event. And like plastics is one of those things that people get annoyed about and they should, but the whole reusable plastic bottle thing is a great example of wrong thinking, right? So. I got a beautiful present last year of a lovely reusable water bottle. It was my favorite. And I left it in a public toilet in a hotel like a couple of days later. And I really missed it. But it's, it's typical of the example, right, is that's a failure of imagination. The way to do a water bottle is to get plastic that dissolves in water, right, into so it's biological plastic. And then you drink your bottle of water and then you fire it into the river. And 35 seconds later, it's dissolved back into biology. Now, that is the kind of invention that we need in 2021, not forgetting your your reusable bottle somewhere, right? And by the way, that technology exists. There's a Dutch company that has it and it's growing like crazy. And so that's how we solve global warming. We don't you know, force people to do things that either they don't want to do or that are impractical, we out-tech it. Yeah, we invent our way out of it, like we've done in the whole history of humanity. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Saying then on kind of, you know, the events of the last 12 months, Mm -hmm. how 
has your business been impacted by that? It's been, some parts of it have been wonderfully affected um, and other parts have been irrevocably damaged. Um, So we do projects as well, right? So we just, we don't just tell industrial customers what to do. We actually help them do it. So we might install a new boiler system or install solar and all of that. And that's a big revenue generator for our group. And that's been completely decimated um, because the last thing a food company wants is you installing something in their factory in the middle of a global pandemic. So that business has been heavily damaged. We've had to lay off 70 or 80 people. It's been very sad. And then on the positive side, our software business increased fivefold in size last year. And that's been huge. And we've been hiring more software developers and, and more people. And then our automotive business has was born out of the pandemic, really, our, our EV business. And, and so it's been brilliant. But for me personally, too, like my life before COVID was get up on a Monday morning in Dublin, spend one week in the office, then spend another week short haul and then another week long haul. So long haul, Brazil, Sydney, and visiting our teams down there. And so I haven't been on a plane since last March. And that's completely changed my life, actually. I've I've been on a plane for for nearly 30 years, you know, and that's been fantastic. And it allows you to think much deeper about everything and think a lot more strategically and, and all of that, you know. And what has it been like going remote when you've got over 250 employees? Um, it's been perfect. Like if you do 12 hours of Zoom calls, which is what we do every day at the moment, there's a couple of things. You have to watch the team's mental health not in some kind of half-baked way like we used to do it, but really seriously. So we've put a whole lot of structures in place around people's mental health. And then likewise on physical exercise and stuff like that, because you can't do 12 hours of Zoom calls without seriously damaging your brain. Like it's not what we were designed for. Whereas now, you know, so the only way to do that is to look after people's mental health, whether that's meditation, you know, any of the tools that are out there. And we, you know, we would pay lip service to that before, whereas now we're quite rigorous about it and deploying more and more tools all the time to make that work. Because like COVID will end uh, hopefully quite soon. And we don't want to go back to the way we were, you know, um, spending millions every month on travel, most trips wasted, actually, as it turns out. And we want to instead have people at home uh, or in the office, but in a kind of structured and enjoyable way. So, like, I was even thinking last week, like, if you do 12 hours worth of Zoom calls, that's 12 hours of work, right? And then now you're exhausted. But if you think about, like, let's say even London, right? So we would go to London and the most you would do in a day is four meetings, right? Now, how many meetings of those four meetings did you really need to be there in person? And the answer from our analysis is about one meeting in every three days. So just the sheer waste of time that we were doing before COVID is is huge, staggering. You know? Yeah, and then, and, and obviously, if, if you're traveling by plane as well, there's a knock-on carbon footprint for Absolutely. that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, though, you know, with this sort of 
work from home revolution, even though it's quite a cliched way to describe it. Do do you think that there's any sort of false positives that companies might see in terms of energy savings? Because actually, in fact, the cost and the consumption is just taking place in employees' homes now. Yeah, there's a bit of that. But like workers, like in an office, are are a minuscule amount of energy consumption. And moving that to their home is equally as tiny. Like it's really energy consumption around the world is all centered around big factories, big buildings, and then transport, right? And so moving it from an office to home is nominal. You know, it's it really isn't that much. Like we have a home solar division and they've grown phenomenally during this time because I had been talking to people about solar and that they should have solar, but I'd never had solar in my own house. And so at the beginning of, of this pandemic, we decided to put solar into our house and and then it caused an explosion because of business because we realized that this really, really worked and it really, really was a no-brainer. And so more and more, you'll see people going not off grid, but certainly more and more people will put solar into their house as as the prices drop. Like for us here, um, taking our house off grid was a 25% return on our money. So the money it cost us to do it, it was the equivalent of getting a 25% return in the bank. And that was without any government subsidies. So that And that proves the point about we don't need governments here. We just need to get on with it. Yeah, because I was going to ask you what sort of solutions, you know, to the work from home kind of on-site mix that we might see in the future for tech companies would you recommend? And obviously like that, that straight away, that that's one that I think would appeal to a lot of people. Definitely. And we're working on an offering actually. It's going to take us another while to put together. We'll, we'll have it together in the next six months, which is an offering for companies, which is a combination of an EV car, solar, um, and, a, and a better working environment at home. And we've already had an interest from one company that has 800 staff and they want to do it you know and that's a combination of the technology leveraging tax breaks you know leveraging productivity breaks all of that in one bundle basically but i think for for people themselves the thing we're learning ourselves is that over time you need to create your own space and for some people if you you know if you have two kids and you're living in a two bed apartment it's very difficult to create space. And so for that type of person, they need some kind of local shared space, not something in the city, but something that's local to them. And so we're developing something in the village near our office as a tester to be able to do a shared working space. And then for people who are lucky enough to have a bit more space, we've noticed that you know, just perfecting that space and helping our teams to perfect that space is fantastic for them. And it's the kind of thing a year ago we would have thought was madness. Like, you know, having the right lighting, having a candle burning. Like, as I talk to you, and I'm not a candles person, there is a candle on my desk burning, right? And if you had told me that a year ago, I would have said you were on drugs. And so there are all these things, you know, that that we're learning make a difference. What other, you know, long-term impacts in terms of sustainability now do you think, you know, might come out of this last year? 
I think business travel is permanently gone. And But bear in mind, business travel is probably half of 1% of global warming, if even probably less than that. I think, you know, the question you asked earlier about like, are we are we panicking about COVID and turning our back on global warming? I deeply believe, and the data is supporting this, that this has woken us up to our humanity, you know, what are we, what's important, all of that kind of thing. And, and I think that will be the longer effect. And despite the pandemic, you know, global warming green initiatives have become a higher priority for politicians. Before I do let you go, though, Norman, I would love to hear a little bit about Electrify. I know you you alluded to it earlier in our chat. It's such an interesting thing that you do. And I think our audience would certainly love to hear about it. Can you share, firstly, what the company do and then maybe what your most interesting commission has been to date? <laughs> well, the... So what we do is we electrify specialist vehicles and that's the elevator pitch. And so what does that mean? I mean, there are millions of vehicles in in the world from beautiful classic cars to mining support vehicles that it's too expensive to buy a new electric one. So what we do is we convert them to electric. And then the sexy end of that business is that we take some of the most beautiful cars in the world. We work with some of the most famous car designers in the world to convert those to high performance electric. And then I guess the most interesting bit of that is that we do inevitably when you create something that beautiful, you end up with a lot of celebrities looking for them. And so ones we can talk about, we did um, Ellie Goulding's wedding car, which was a VW van. We did Dev Patel's Fiat 500. And we have a bunch of other celebrities that we've done very beautiful cars for that we were not allowed to talk about. Yeah. Um, I like the Dev Patel went with the Fiat 500. I always thought we'd have a lot in common. <laughs> I mean, it's essentially any vehicle that you can do. It completely, yeah. And at the moment in the workshops here, there's like a 64 Corvette Stingray, there's a Ferrari 308, which Magnum PI used to drive in the famous TV show. So there's quite a lot of glamour, but then there's also two Toyota Land Cruisers that are going to go down a mine over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> so it's a, it's a mixture of everything. And that business, you know, we started that because we felt that while there were going to be lots of new electric vehicles, there were millions of others that needed to be converted. So there was a climate change requirement. But also, I've always loved cars. And I I can't, because of climate change, I don't want to be driving a big muscle car from the States. I want to drive something that has the lowest carbon footprint possible. And also with cars, as Peter Brock, the famous designer, said, in one of our videos, he said, you know, modern cars are just like bars of soap driving down the road. And so isn't it much better to drive something kind of truly unique and beautiful, you know? And you're reusing something that, you know, that existed before rather than building something new. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when I was saying earlier about messaging around climate change, the things we've tried over the years, making people feel guilty, telling them they have to live minimally, None of that stuff works. And Electrify is a great example of of the opposite. You can have your cake and eat it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's offering people the opportunity to live maximally, but with minimum effect. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And get rid of the guilt. Guilt doesn't work. Guilt has never been a motivator for anybody. And what we've done with our younger generation is is terrible. We've basically, all they want to do is travel around the world and have a bit of crack. And we say, no, 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 you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do the other. Right. And it doesn't work. Right. That's not what people want. No, it's not. And it, it, it doesn't afford a younger generation the opportunities that other generations had as well. It's just not fair, as you say. Well, listen, Norman, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work? We're very, we've, over the last six months, we've become really good at social media. So if they go to coolplanetgroup.ie, and that's our website, or if they type in Ava, which is the name of our high-end car brand, and they can find us on social media pretty much anywhere. Google five minutes, you'll find us. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and we'll do the, the groundwork by linking out to everything in our show thank notes. You. Thank you. And thank you so much, Norman. No problem at all. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Norman. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people like you find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode for you. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.